This episode is brought to you by IVP. In his award-winning book, Reading While Black, Esau Macaulay calls the church to read scripture through the lens of the black church tradition. By sharing his own deeply personal narratives and offering his expertise as a biblical scholar, Macaulay enlightens Christians of all backgrounds about the black experience and helps them to better understand their own. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive Reading While Black for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's I-V-P-O-D-2-5, at ivpress.com. That way of life that is going to form us will always involve certain activities, certain things that we do together. We know that other people, the people who are around impact us a lot. Certain things that we do on our own, we know that when we're in solitude, that impacts us. We think about what do we fill our minds with, that shapes us a whole lot. So really the idea is I try to arrange my life around those activities that will make space for God inside me, that will disrupt the habits, gossip, greed, lust, anger, whatever it is that keep me from being the person that I want to be. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Digital Examine podcast. I'm Jay. Really glad you're joining us today for this conversation. Um, my guess is that you are you can probably relate to this. I uh, often find myself reading books, um, learning from sages and wise thinkers and luminaries, um, specifically along the lines of discipleship to Jesus and spiritual formation. And there's this sort of strange counteractive thing that happens sometimes. I read um, the wisdom of uh, incredible thinkers and at the same time, I find myself deeply inspired and um, totally, utterly frustrated or intimidated because sometimes it just feels like it's not for me. Like I'm not smart enough. I'm not deep enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not disciplined enough. Um, the words on the pages um, feel so unattainable and inaccessible. But over the years, what I've learned is that that's sort of a figment of my imagination, that I've sort of created this um, strange version of discipleship and formation that isn't real. When I think back to Jesus and the first young men that he called to follow him, they were clearly not the best of the best. They were not the academic elites. Uh, they were not the ones who had achieved the heights of glory and fame. They were, you know, run-of-the-mill fishermen living in small towns, doing blue-collar work. And yet, it's those people that Jesus calls, and it's those people that he moves in and through to launch the Christian movement. My friend John Ortberg, who is a pastor and a speaker, who's been serving in ministry for more than 40 years. He's an author. Um, he's one of those wise sages, one of those luminaries that has really made uh, formation into Christ-likeness an accessible 
endeavor for me on a personal level, and I know for thousands of people around the world. Um, John Ortberg's work is uh, spiritual formation. That is the central theme of so much of what he speaks about and writes about and does. And uh, he equips people to know God in an interactive, life-transforming way, in an everyday, normal sort of way. Um, currently, John leads a ministry called Become New, which focuses on helping people grow spiritually one day at a time. He's the author of many, many books, a brilliant thinker, um, but more than that, a real pastor who loves people and brings um, big ideas down to the ground level and invites us into a life of uh, accessible, ongoing communion with God. So I'm really excited for all of you to hear from John, to learn from him. And um, I believe that God has something really profound to say to you through this conversation. So here is my conversation with John Ortberg. John, thank you so much for joining me on the Digital Examine podcast. It's always a joy to talk to you and uh, particularly here, Jay. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, we um, I've had the great joy of having a chance to talk to many people, but uh, talking to you on this podcast and this conversation, I've been uniquely looking forward because you know a little bit. I mean, you have been so formative to my own sort of journey of tapping into a life of ongoing communion with God. And long before you and I were friends, just through your work, one of the ways that your work was so helpful to me is, um, and I think lots of people can relate to this, I grew up with a, a grave misunderstanding that a life of ongoing communion with God, a deep abiding sense of his loving presence at all times. I thought that that was the sort of life that was just reserved for the spiritual giants, like the, the people who go and live in monasteries and, you know, um, deny all things. And they're just literally in the presence of God. I, I just grew up thinking there's no way I could do that. So what I will defer to is just sort of uh, an occasional when I need God, hopefully he responds sort of thing. But um, your work has this way of bridging that gap. So I want to start by asking a personal question. It's kind of a big question. Talk about your own journey. Most people know you, your work. They're like, how did John Ortberg become John Ortberg <laughs> or whatever? Like how and when and how did you arrive at the place where a life with God went from being this sort of unreachable height to an accessible and livable reality. I'm very grateful for your role in my spiritual life. Uh, most folks watching or listening to this probably wouldn't know, but I live in the San Jose area most of the time. And when I'm in town, the church where Jay serves as lead pastor is the church that I and my wife attend. So I'm very grateful to be under your teaching and uh, to learn from you. Um, no, it's kind. I grew up in the church, and if folks are familiar with this kind of white bread evangelical culture, that's a word that has largely been lost in our day. But when I was growing up, it was kind of a good word, and it meant not fundamentalist on the one hand, but still robustly theistic and supernatural on the other hand. And there were many, many qualities of that 
upbringing and tradition that I'm very, very grateful for. I'd say one of the areas that we didn't think about or talk about a lot was what's the process by which you come to experience God's presence? Or what's the process by which you actually do experience transformation or actually do begin to change? And that was always a bit of a black box for me. And uh, what I kind of understood growing up was that I ought to read the Bible and pray. And then going to church, you know, was certainly a key part of that. But I found myself really kind of frustrated because I felt like I'm doing the things that I know to do. I'm kind of doing spiritual life the way that you're supposed to do spiritual life. And yet I feel like I'm not actually changing. And I'm not having the kind of experience of God that it seems like might be possible. Certainly nothing like what the characters in Scripture seem to report. So that just seemed like kind of a special effects, wholly other type of life experience than what I knew. I was always fascinated by life and life change and character and faith. So when I was studying both psychology, clinical psychology, as well as theology were the areas that felt to me like they're asking the questions that really matter. So, you know, other disciplines, medicine, architecture, yep, that's good. Somebody ought to do that stuff. But really, how does human character get formed is the most important kind of question. For me, it was, if I had to point to a particular event or time, it would be reading a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, written by an author named Dallas Willard. Dallas, as folks listening may know, uh, taught for many decades at University of Southern California. He was a philosopher. He himself grew up in a Christian environment, read promiscuously as a young person, and kind of stumbled into lots of the richest thought across the centuries about life change and faith. And in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he says he writes it, his burden with the book is, that Christianity fails in our day to take transformation as seriously as do modern revolutionary movements that really needs to get addressed. And his thesis, he says, is that authentic transformation really is possible if we're willing to do one thing. And that one thing is to take seriously the need to arrange our lives around the kind of practices and rhythms that Jesus himself engaged in to be constantly at home with and receiving power from his heavenly father. And when I read that sentence, I thought somebody has really thought deeply about this. Yeah. And there are actual ways to try to engage in spiritual life or try to connect with God. And I don't know how far I can progress in them. And in a way, it doesn't matter a whole lot how far I actually progress. What matters is to try to make that effort above all other efforts. Yeah. I want to talk about effort for a moment. You talked about the upbringing, very familiar to me as well. I'm sure familiar to many who are listening. The idea that we grew up thinking, read my Bible, pray before I eat, maybe pray before I go to bed, mm -hmm. go to church on Sundays for sure, You know, the Bible study, the youth group, whatever it might be. And then that sort of utter frustration um, with a lack of change or transformation we feel. And at the same time, for those who are unfamiliar with Dallas Willard, they might hear that idea to arrange our lives around the things that Jesus taught, that he embodied in order to experience a rich, robust life with God. On the surface, someone might misunderstand that and say, I don't, I don't get it, John. That's exactly what I'm doing when I'm praying before I eat. And when I go to church on Sunday, like, the Bible tells me to, 
which it doesn't. And then, you know, like all those sorts of things. So uh, expound on that a little bit. When you say arrange our lives, because I know what you mean, you know, we've spoken extensively and Mm -hmm. read, you know, similar work. What does that mean exactly? If if it's not just, this is another question for in a moment, but like, it's not just religious activity that you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly right. Really, the idea of it is we all have a way of arranging our lives. We, we Our lives run mostly by habit. When I get up in the morning, here's what I do first. Here's what I think about. Here's how I greet the people. For many people in our day, doom scrolling with one of these is the way that they begin yeah. the day. Well, that's you arrange your life around that. You're not intentional about it. You know, you don't probably say to yourself, first thing I'm going to do in the morning is just pick this up and see what terrible things have happened overnight. So for the most part, we're not even particularly often aware of how we arrange our lives. But we are the kind of creatures who naturally do that. We have time, we have to fill it, we have to kill it. And so we do, and we're mostly governed by habit. And so we mostly run off of habit. And all of those activities have a way of forming us or shaping us. They have a way of shaping the kind of thoughts that we think and the kind of desires that we have, the choices or options that we see as being available before us. And this is inevitably true of human beings. It's not a particularly religious insight. There's a guy who writes a lot about Greek philosophy as really being largely what we would think of as therapy in our day. It was a way for people to try to manage their thoughts and their inner life. And so the Stoics did that and so on. Um, So when you come to the Bible, you have, for example, the first psalm where the psalmist says, blessed is the person who doesn't. And then the psalmist is talking there about a way of life. At the end of that psalm, talks about um, the way the Lord watches over the way of the godly, but the way of life of the ungodly um, will perish. It doesn't last. And Jesus talks about the broad way and the narrow way. So everybody has a way of life. When Jesus came, uh, he said, if you want to learn from him, then actually hang around with him and discover his way of life. And so the way that you did that back then was you would physically follow him around and just watch him and find out here's what he did when he woke up in the morning. And here's how he prayed to God. Here's how he handled money. Here's how he dealt with his anger. Here's how he learned from and lived in the scriptures. Here's how he served other people. Um, here's how he exercised compassion. So they would do that. And then when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, that option was no longer available to people. So We have the early church, and if folks read the Bible, if you look at Acts 2, it talks about how, and they devoted themselves. So this is a strong sense of uh, decision, intentionality. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Day after day, they met together. They were in the temple courts. They were in homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they entered into a way of life. And uh, that way of life that is going to form us will always involve certain activities, certain things that we do together. We know that other people, the people who are around impact us a lot. Certain things that we do on our own, we know that when we're in solitude, that impacts us. We think about what do we fill our minds with? That shapes us a whole lot. What do we fill our time with? We know that when we're generous towards other people, when we serve other people, that creates different patterns of thoughts and feelings in us. So really the idea is I try to arrange my life around those activities that will make space for God inside me, that will disrupt the habits, gossip, greed, lust, 
anger, whatever it is, disrupt the habits that keep me from being the person that I want to be and make space for the formation of new habits, new thoughts, new perceptions, new desires. And there's a lot of wisdom about what that way of life might look like. And for me in particular, having grown up in the uh, tradition that I did, it's kind of like I only had two arrows in my quiver. And um, one of them was prayer and one of them was Bible study. So to learn, there's actually a lot more arrows than that. There's a lot more possibilities than that was really helpful. Let's spend a moment pondering the pressures of performance culture trying to get people to think that I am something I am not. I know this is something I'm tempted to do often. And everybody has a way of life. So what is your way of life? How pressurized is it by performance culture, trying to convince people that you are something or someone that you're actually not? Is your life Christ-shaped, as John put it? How can it become more Christ-shaped? Is there maybe one small rearrangement that's necessary in your life today to live a life free of the burden of outcomes? Take a few moments, ponder those thoughts, and we'll come back to our conversation with John. Do you, like so many of us, see anxiety as proof of how much you care? Or maybe anxiety is an unwelcome shadow over your days, bringing with it clenched teeth and an upset stomach? Anxiety leads us to succumb to fear and fight peace. Anxious living is a distortion of good motives, blocking the clarity of stillness and rest. Through his book, A Non-Anxious Life, Alan Fadling calls us to look to Jesus, the ultimate non-anxious presence. Fixing our minds on grace and eternity, we can rest more deeply, live more fully, and lead better. Stay tuned at the end of this episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on A Non-Anxious Life at ivypress.com. It seems to me the awareness that every life is arranged in some manner, that everybody has a way of life is such an important starting point that everyone has a way of life. Because I think most of us assume that life is just life. And at some point Mm -hmm. I will get to the work of arranging it and establishing a way of life. But the reality is everyone already has one. And then we think about just those two quivers that get so sort of accentuated or have been so heavily accentuated, not bad things, but just there's so much more. Um, you know, I think about, you mentioned earlier, you know, you and I both, uh, you, um, 
you know, part-time, me full-time. We, we both call San Jose home sort of uh, the southern tip of Silicon Valley, um, like much of our country and much of the modern world, really. Um, it's an up and to the right culture, you know? And so I think maybe even even followers of Jesus, there might be a sense in which when I think about, okay, I need to arrange my life and establish a particular way of life, I'm tracking with you. Um, there's a temptation. I know there's a temptation for me to think about that the way I think about most other things in my life, which is how do I maximize so that I can get my spiritual life, my formation into Christ-likeness up and to the right? Um, you talk about in your book, Soul Keeping, which fan- incredible book, you say that the with God life is it's not a life of more religious activity or devotions or trying to be good. It's a life of inner peace and contentment for your soul with, and I love this line, with the maker and the manager of the universe. Um, which really, when I think about up and to the right in light of the maker and the manager of the universe, my up and to the right is just so minuscule. It doesn't really look very up and it doesn't look very right. It's just this dot, this speck that's enveloped in the grandeur and the nearness that is God. So talk to us who think about the spiritual life the same way we think about most other things in our lives. We're looking for return on investment. We're looking to win, to succeed, to sort of cross that finish line and know, oh, I've arrived now. I am the spiritual giant that I've long admired or whatever. What sort of paradigm shift is necessary? Like how, how do we how do we accurately measure success when it comes to formation? And and is success even the goal or is it something else? Yeah. Well, there's a lot wrapped up in those thoughts, Jay. Um, I'll start with this. When I think about uh, Silicon Valley in particular, probably increasingly our world in general, uh, it feels a lot like a performance culture. And, um, you know, at the core of performance is trying to get other people to think that I'm something that I'm not. Uh, um, and trying to achieve something that will create that impression with other folks. Um, I remember one time a group of us met with Dallas Willard and I'll just caveat it now. Pretty much anything that I say that's worthwhile or useful probably came through Dallas Willard. So I won't always stop to say the name Dallas Willard, but I'll just make that as a blanket statement for me. He just happens to be someone who is particularly helpful. He'd be the first to say it's not about him. It's just, uh, where do you find great wisdom? Um, but he would talk sometimes uh, about how, you know, in, in Greek mythology, there was the character Atlas and Atlas carried the world on its shoulders. We are not meant to bear the burden of outcomes. We're just not meant to carry that weight. Now, um, we ought to try to learn uh, from feedback. And so uh, in my job, whatever my job happens to be, uh, as I get evaluated or when I'm with friends or when I'm at home and people have feedback, when it's positive, when it's negative, I should be open to it, non-defensive, seek to learn from it. That's a really good thing. But my ego is not on the line. My well-being is never on the line. So I no longer have to live carrying the burden of outcomes. And I remember watching Dallas speak one time. He was a philosopher. So sometimes he'd talk to be riveting. And then other times it would be kind of a monotone and 
might not go great. And often, Jay, as you know, in the church world, when somebody talks, the first thought afterwards is, wonder how it went. How did it go? Let's survey everybody. Let's find out. Was it good? Am I losing my fastball? And he had finished speaking and people were not necessarily tracking with him the whole time. But as we were walking out to the car together, he was just humming the tune of an old hymn. And there was not a cell in his body that was worried about how did the talk go. And I thought watching him, that's what it looks like to live free of the burden of outcomes. And I would really like that. So now as we think about the spiritual life and getting freedom from a culture of performance, um, the foundation of it is grace and that I'm loved by God, not just that I have been forgiven by grace, but that I can live by grace, which means I receive my life and my worth as a gift from God from one moment to the next moment to the next moment. So right now, as you and I are talking, I don't have to live under the burden of what do I say and how's this conversation going? I can just simply say, now, God, would you please bring the right words into my mind and help me to focus on Jay and help us to think to the people Think about the people who might be listening right now and then just let go and the outcomes are in your hands. And so then I'm also free to say God is not, you didn't have a little behavior modification chart up in heaven where he's given me a gold star for the religious devotion activities. And so I can just ask, who would I be like if I was really living in the kingdom? If I was living a life that was pervaded by love and joy and peace, what would I look like? And then what are the obstacles that get in the way of me living that kind of life? Like hurry for me is one that I will often wrestle with. And then working backwards, what are practices that I can engage in that can free me from those obstacles or burdens and enable me to live that kind of life? And now I'm engaging in those activities, not in order to have my spiritual life, you know, go up and to the right. God is not interested in something called your spiritual life. He's just interested in your life, just your whole life. So then we're free to say, how do I arrange my days, the rhythms of my life in such a way that I can be increasingly free from the burdens and obstacles that get in the way so that I can live with love, joy, peace, and freedom increasingly from one day to the next. Gosh, that one line, I think, probably is a line that many of us need to let sink in, that God is not interested in my spiritual life. Mm. God is just interested in my life. Even as you say it, for me, having followed Jesus, I think, as faithfully as I could, um, or close to it for the last you know 20-something years, it still sort of feels like such a deep, um, necessary word. No, God's not interested in my spiritual life. God is interested in the whole of my life. Um, and that sort of demarcating line that I create is a line I created. Yeah, no, <laughs> and word. it's a constant problem. It's part of why Jesus got into so much conflict in his day with religious leaders. We always want to kind of narrow down or turn God's concerns into something that we can manage, control, or engineer. Again, in the tradition that I grew up, if somebody asked, how's your spiritual life going? Which, by the way, is a great way to kill a conversation if you're at a party, just ask people that question. <laughs> but if somebody did ask it of me, 
my immediate thought would be, um, how have my quiet times been going? That's the language that we would use for reading the Bible and praying. If my quiet times are going well, then my spiritual life's good. Up to the right, I can get on with life. If it's bad, then I would feel guilty and bad. And uh, and then it hit me, in Jesus' day, if you measured spiritual life by devotional activities and then asked who's doing the best, it would be the Pharisees, it would be the religious leaders that often Jesus was most concerned about or critical of. So we got to find some way to gauge maturity, spiritual life, however you want to call it, in a way that doesn't produce Pharisees, where the Pharisees don't win. And so what that means is I can't use disciplines or spiritual activities or devotional practices as the primary metric for gauging how am I doing in life. And uh, that was quite disorienting to me. So I remember asking Dallas one time, well, um, how should I try to gauge how I'm doing in my life with God or just my life as a human being? What do you do? And he said, uh, immediate response, I will ask myself, Am I growing more or less irritable these days? Hmm. And I will ask myself, am I growing more or less easily discouraged these days? Hmm. Because if I'm living in the love of God, I find that it's just I'm less easily irritated. And if the peace of Christ really is uh, at home in my heart, I'm less discouraged when I face problems or criticism. So those two questions, am I growing more or less easily irritated these days? And am I uh, growing more or less easily discouraged these days? Those two questions for me became very important questions and a very helpful replacement of how are my devotional activities going? Yeah, those are really helpful questions. You mentioned, you know, home. And uh, you again, um, in another book, Eternity is Now in Session, you've got this wonderful uh, line. You say, when we abide, when we make our home, we ab uh, our abode in a place, uh, we linger there and, and the inner person gets shaped by our abode. You know, there's all sorts of things about family of origin stuff that like, it's just undeniably true. Um, and then you say we can abide in fear or ambition, anger, lust, or we can abide in God. Now, again, beautiful line, but I, I want to ask a, a a really sort of practical question. None of us say it that way. I don't. I I rarely meet someone who will say something like, "Oh yeah, I really live." I mean, I have met them, but it's so few and far between that a person has enough self self awareness to say, "Yeah, I really live. I abide. I make my home in fear or in lust or ambition <laughs> or whatever." You typically think of them as these, you know, sort of um, things that happen to us, and then we sort of react and respond. And the, a strange thing happens that because we think of those things that way, even with God, I think often we think God is just sort of something or someone that occasionally happens to us and we react and respond or occasionally I will go to him. But that's not home. That's, you know, you're visiting a place or a person that's very different than home. Um, so I want to ask you more personally too, um, 
What does that look like? Practically speaking, what does that look like? And again, not just, you know, your devotional life and practices, but just your the wherewithal and the sense of awareness that you live with, that you are at home with God in all places at all times. What does that feel like? What does that look like? Are there some practices that help sort of remind and recalibrate you to that reality as you go about your day? Yeah, I have seen people uh, where I can tell from I can tell from their bodies, from their faces, um, there is a kind of peace and a readiness to love and engage and a readiness for joy that is way down the road from where I live. So uh, I have a long, long ways to go before I'm able to abide in the way that I most want to or the way that you're talking to you. I do know I want it. I, I do know um, I taste it. And when I taste it, I realize the things that I think I want or that I get attached to, um, being successful, having people think well of me, are all very short-lived and none of them last. And, uh, you know, a word that's very uh, connected to abiding in our culture is addiction. You know, when we look at uh, addiction, we're seeing somebody who is abiding in something that's being destructive in them and they can't get out and they can't get away. Abiding, I think, is mostly something we do with our minds. So when people wonder, what does it mean to say, you know, when Jesus says, abide in me, what does that mean? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest and ultimate freedom that we have is where do we put our minds? What do I actually think about? And you have these wonderful statements in scripture. Uh, the old King James version was, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. A lot of the really classic and quite simple works from Ignatius and the spiritual exercises to Brother Lawrence, Practice the Presence of God, are really trying to help us figure out how do we direct our minds towards God. So for me, it's very in different times of life. When we had small children at home, it was very different than it is right now. These last several years have been years where there's been quite a lot of pain, and uh, that's been hard. But there's a way in which um, pain can be quite helpful also. So I'll find I never sleep through the night and I'll have uh, ahead of time either something that I will read. There's an author named Henry Nowen who's often helpful to me or uh, something that I will listen to, uh, putting earbuds in um, for a couple of minutes that will allow me to connect with God at night. And so that will be a helpful thing. And then I find in the morning um, because I will be wrestling with, especially over these last several years, uh, pain and worry about the day, um, to have a time in the morning early on after, after I pour a cup of coffee where I can try to put myself in God's presence. I will say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I will also say, uh, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hill as a way of asking for God's help. I will read a little passage of scripture. And often another little piece, spend some time in prayer. When I'm done with that, I will write down in a journal the thoughts that come to me that I think may be coming from God. I have a very good friend. And Monday through Friday, we will call each other up, talk for 10 minutes. How did yesterday go? Where were you tempted? Where did you see God? What do you face today? How can I pray for you today? And we will walk through that together. So those would be some of the rhythms that would be during these days most helpful to me 
to try to set up a trajectory of abiding with God. Really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as we wind down the conversation, I want to ask uh, on behalf of so many of us who have felt this frustration, I've, uh, my guess is that there are lots of people listening who might be saying, John, this is all great. I want it. Sounds fantastic. But I've got, I've got to admit something that the truth is when I try to abide in God, make my home in him and live with an ongoing deep awareness of his loving presence. And I try to converse with him and talk with him. It doesn't really seem like he's got much to say. <laughs> you know, it, it's a little frustrating or I feel a little bit strange. You taught at our church recently and you quoted one theologian who has this fantastic, I'm paraphrasing her, but essentially, you know, um, when we talk to God, we call it prayer. But when we say God talks to us, we call it schizophrenia, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. I, I feel kind of crazy mm -hmm. if I say I'm, you know, but again, one of the things, one of the great gifts you've offered me and so many people is really a sort of normalizing yeah. of life with God. Yeah. So, so as we close, talk to those of us who are listening that are like, I want this, John, but it feels so foreign and strange. Sometimes God feels silent and quiet. Um, just pastorally speak to us with some encouragement and some hope. Yeah, I will. And while I do this, Jay, to anybody who's listening, I, I do this deeply to myself as well. If you find yourself thinking God's far away, you know, a deep part of the gospel of Jesus is that God is as close as the air that we breathe. So our Father who is in heaven doesn't mean he's way out there past Pluto somewhere. If you find yourself thinking you know, I feel like I pray and my prayers don't get past the ceiling. That's not a problem because he's under the ceiling too. So yeah. there is that promise, first of all, that he's closer than um, we're aware. And and then the other key thing is when we were talking about this at um, church, it's helpful to, at least for me, to think about communication and take some of the confusion or vagueness out of it. To communicate with somebody is just to guide their thoughts. Right now, you and I are having a conversation. And because we are, you ask me questions, I'll ask you questions. It makes each of us have thoughts that we would not otherwise have. And they're my thoughts, they're in my mind or your thoughts, but they're being guided by each other. And because we are finite beings, we have to use sounds or, you know, write the alphabet, use sights to guide thoughts. Because God is infinite, that means that he can guide a thought without any finite meaning at all. So any thought might come to you in any moment and it could be God guiding. And of course, part of what that means is because he doesn't need any other means, he might guide my thought and I don't even know that he's guiding it. So I think the most important thing I would say, and again, I say it to me and to each person is, um, pay great attention to the thoughts in your mind. A great coach is able to look at a team and to realize from one game to the next, from one quarter to the next, oh, we have gained momentum, we've got a great spirit, great energy, or we have lost it. Um, a, a flourishing human being is able to gain awareness of their mind and, and to understand what's at stake in the kinds of thoughts that I'm having. Again, not in a legalistic way, not like God has got a little you know, a uh, gold star chart up in heaven, but recognizing when my thoughts pull me towards envy, when my thoughts pull me towards fear, 
when my thoughts pull me towards anxiety, that's not the voice of God. And when I'm inspired, um, when I'm hopeful, when I'm relaxed, when I think I could be a joyful person, I could be grateful right now. I could just be thankful. I get to have this conversation with Jay Kim and I get to learn from it. And most of us, but I'll just put it in my terms, I get far too casual and cavalier about the thoughts that are going on in my mind and don't recognize you put enough thoughts together and then you have an hour, then you have a day, then you have a week, then you have a life. And so to begin to be intentional, not obsessive, not weighed down, but um, God, would you help me bring my mind back to you a lot? And when a thought comes and there's grace in it or hope in it or courage in it or interest in it or joy in it or that is a cute little puppy or, uh, you know, that's a good word to receive from this other person. In each of those moments now, my mind is abiding with God and open to hearing from God. And that's life. Beautiful. Well said. Well said. John, thank you so much for your life, your friendship, your ministry, your work, um, your love to our church here at home. It's meant so much to us. You are continuing to write and you're continuing to uh, to speak in, in really wonderful formats that are really accessible for folks. And I just want people to make sure that they have access. So uh, for those who maybe might be new, newer to your work, um, What's a, what's a good way for them to just stay tracking with you and connected to the work that you're uh, creating? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I do teach um, most, most weekdays, Monday through Friday, uh, and folks can go online and just Google Become New um, or becomenew.com, um, and uh, that will put them in touch with how to take a look at that. So it's usually 10 or 12 minutes um, each day. And the focus really is another thing Dallas Willard would often say, the main thing God gets out of your life is the person you become. Mm -hmm. And that's also the main thing you get out of your life. So that idea of how do we um, try to become, move towards becoming the person God made us to be, that's the focus of it. Yeah, I watch several become new videos most weeks and uh, couldn't recommend it enough. Very accessible, thought provoking and, and really helpful. John, again, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Much love to you. And uh, so glad you could be on. It was an honor. Anytime. Thanks, Jay. Thank you guys so much for listening, for joining me on this continuing conversation as we consider what it's like to live a life of ongoing communion with God. Again, as always, um, as a new podcast, it's really helpful for us. If, uh, you're enjoying what you're, what you're hearing and listening to, um, share it with friends, let people know, uh, share about it on your social media or whatever it is that you use to share about things that you're finding helpful. And, uh, if you're willing, um, subscribe to the podcast, like it, review it. All of those things are tremendously helpful for us. But most importantly, um, my hope and prayer is that these aren't just conversations you listen to, but that they might provoke you toward um, action, toward uh, leaning um, faithfully, confidently, and courageously into God's invitation to live in ongoing communion with him. 
So uh, blessings to you, grace, peace, love, and we will talk to you all very soon. The Digital Examine is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound Engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Helen Lee, Travis Albritton, and Andrew Bronson. Our production assistants are Christine Policcio and Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, J.Y. Kim. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast.